Hello and welcome to This is Cannabis from X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. I'm your host, Lee Henderson, and with me in the studio today is my co-host, Emma Chasen, founder of Eminent Consulting. Hi. Hello. I missed you. I missed you. We're back from break. Woohoo! We took a couple weeks off, folks. We did, which was nice. Yeah. I want to talk all about what you did while we were on break very quickly. Um, I shake my head. You did. Yeah. It's gleaming. It is like I have gone like the full Michael Stipe bald man. It looks good. It's okay. I like you it. You wear it well. Yeah. It's like a now, I don't know, but it's it's something I'm definitely getting used to every time I look at the mirror. I'm like, no. Oh. I honestly think it makes you look younger. Cue ball. <laughs> Cue ball. Cue ball. Q-tip. <laughs> um, so uh something so i went down to california um on my ch- while well, my children were out of school for spring break we went to palm springs in los angeles mm, lovely it was so nice oh i want a vacation it was nice <laughs> yeah. but you did something very very cool i did i want to hear did. about it tell us all about it i went to michigan yes. uh at, for the hash bash rally which mm-hmm. is in ann arbor been going on since like the early 70s it's amazing and it's on the u of m campus and they bring in i mean thousands and thousands of people come and smoke weed and basically it's an activism rally Mm -hmm. um like a big f you to the government we're Mm -hmm. just gonna do whatever we want and the history of it and how it came to be is really wonderful and inspiring so if anybody wants to learn more definitely look does it involve does it involve john sinclair do you happen to know yes i believe so yes yes um he's from ann arbor yeah, and it was this period where like um he he was arrested for cannabis mm-hmm. um but then uh ultimately the government uh, deemed it unconstitutional. So there was this like little short window of time where there was no cannabis uh laws, no laws about cannabis or regulation in Michigan, which mean which meant by default that like you could consume it, right? Cuz you couldn't get arrested cuz there were no laws that, that said that. And so that's how kind of hash bash came to be. Yeah. Um and again look it up really if you want to know more because uh, I just was learning about it this weekend while I was there but it was really inspiring um, I had the chance to speak shout out to Ohm of Medicine a wonderful provision center in Ann Arbor that uh, sponsored my trip out there they brought me out there they organized the hash bash uh, every year and uh, I got to speak with a bunch of other like really amazing activists who had traveled from across the country to come in uh, and speak including some federal congress women and and other state legislators um oh, man, that's awesome. yeah and i spoke to like a crowd of fifteen thousand yeah. people which yeah. is insane yeah, definitely the great, largest crowd there's a great picture of of you speaking from shot from behind you i know with my hands are <laughs> like bah! that's an awesome picture yeah. and we posted it on our instagram so you, you can go check it out if you're interested in seeing the picture but how it what was, was that experience it was like? so cool i mean i love speaking mm-hmm. um and especially in that kind of like oof like rally activist uh, mode uh, where I was able to I just had like a short kind of five minute window on that one uh, even shorter where I just was like we need education we need to make sure that communities have access to education that they have access to this industry I was uh, one of the only ones who had been working in an established industry for a very long time and so I touched on just like how I've seen firsthand the uh, cannibalization of the people here who built this industry and then being able to look out at that crowd of 15,000 plus people where it's like you people built this industry uh, you need to make sure that it's not taken away from you we need to all work together to make sure that uh, there is no uh, prevention to access for education as well as participation in this industry so that was really awesome Uh, and then the next day they had a speaker series where I sat on a panel with Dr. Sue Sisley who is a medical doctor who I believe is the only researcher in the United States who is doing and has been doing uh, human clinical trials, FDA randomized human clinical trial clinical trials with cannabis and PTSD patients in Arizona. Um, and she's brilliant and wonderful. So she presented on her research and then also sat on that same panel with Dan Kruger, who he is a researcher out of U of M. Uh, he's an evolutionary biologist. I got to speak about the more kind of public health concerns where we have, yes, this research that's starting to come out. We need more research. We need more physicians and more scientists on our team in that way. But then we have this public health problem, which is this disconnect, this 
limited access to this kind of research and education, not only for our patients and consumers, but also for industry professionals and how um, with all of the work that I do, I seek to bridge that gap. So that was also just like a really cool um, professional highlight for me to be able to sit next to Dr. Sue Sisley and um, Dan Kruger as well uh, as other like brilliant scientists and researchers and kind of be able to hold my own in that way. Um, I hope this doesn't sound like patronizing or whatever, but I'm so proud of you. Thank you. That's not patronizing. That feels really nice. I mean, I'm young, as we know. And so to be with people. We were were born several weeks ago. (laughs) I'm a baby. Yeah. (laughs) But to be with people who are like 20 plus years my senior with huge kind of academic, prolific backgrounds. And to be able to... um, to have them ask me questions and of course me ask them questions and just to engage in that kind of dialogue on like we're both on like the same um like a level it was crazy to me it was really really nice and everybody was just like lovely and it was very inspiring and i mean michigan's gonna be the first state that's gonna have an adult use recreational program uh for cannabis the first state in the midwest and that is huge and Mm -hmm. i'm very excited to see the rollout of that happen and and be able to influence it hopefully um in regards to education shout out to michigan speaking of activism Mm -hmm. we have a great show today we do uh, we do adam smith is back with us from the craft cannabis alliance Mm -hmm. Uh, returning guest returning guest yeah which we're about to have a few returning guests uh, in our next couple of shows which is exciting to Mm -hmm. get their updates we're basically getting sort of um yeah, like status updates, progress updates mm-hmm. on um, on what some of our, our, our early episodes where ha, what how these people's work has sort of um, progressed. I'm sorry, we've used that word like four times in a row now. <laughs> but uh, in Adam's case, there's a lot to, yes. to talk about because he's done a lot of great work, and he's um, where I'm really excited about our conversation. So let's go to that now. Our guest today is Adam Smith, founder and executive director of the Craft Cannabis Alliance. Welcome back to the show, sir. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. It's Thanks so much for so having me. It's so great to have you back in. It's uh, it's good to be here. I love X-Ray and I love the show. Friend of mm. the show, Adam Smith. Um, Adam is back to give us an update on what the Craft Cannabis Alliance, which I think we'll just from here on out call CCA. That's fine. Uh, what you guys have been up to, specifically regarding the One Fix campaign, which mm-hmm. we will get into. Um, but very briefly, I wanted to, let's pretend like you haven't been on the show before. <laughs> okay. Uh, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and what the CCA is? Please. So, so uh, we'll start. The CCA is a mission-driven uh industry association Mm -hmm. for companies in Oregon that are, if you're a licensee, you are majority Oregon owned and committed to a shared set of values, which include uh, ethical business and employment practices, environmental sustainability, um, positive community engagement, and ending the drug war. And we basically feel like the craft industry that's here is subsumed within those values. And if you are local, a local company, and you care deeply about those things, then you are certainly making the best cannabis that you can possibly make. So what do you guys do? Uh, like outside of that? What do know, we do? Outside, yeah, yeah. So I come out of this, not out of cannabis per se, but my background started 25 years ago in, in broader drug policy. Right, reform. you're not a business owner, right? I'm not a business owner. Yeah. I do not. Um, and But I'm a political organizer, and right. I, am, uh, I am strongly anti-drug war, and it's very important seem very important to me that as we take cannabis out of prohibition into a legal market that we do it well and that it not particularly cannabis not be just sucked up and corporatized all over the country mm-hmm. right i mean cannabis the way i like to put it is cannabis is is both a uh, a symbol of and a tool of anti-oppression right and so and most places in the country right now um, the, the legal industry is show us that you have $10 million or $20 million and you can have one of these limited numbers of licenses. Right. And Oregon has an, an indigenous industry, right? Oregon has an industry that has been here for generations, right. um, long before even medical. And it has been a driving economic force in a lot of rural communities here. Many of those communities lost timber as a driving economic force, and cannabis has been very important. And so when we legalized here for adult use, we did something very wise and very Oregonian, which is we legalized the industry we already had. And we looked around, and we had 20 years of medical. We had about 3,500 licensed medical growers, right, registered medical growers, and thousands of unregistered growers. And so what the state did is we said, okay, 
we want to invite all those folks into the legal industry. And the state actually ran a marketing campaign called Go Legal and said, look, we know you're growing, whether you're medical or you're unregistered, come into the legal market, participate in this. No, we, my company was interviewed on that. Like we were part of that campaign. We, we, were, part were, of, in, we were in, the, in like, the campaign, in right? The, I know a yeah, bunch yeah. of folks who are in the campaign. And, and the irony is, you know, it was a smart thing to do in the long term sure. and it showed some vision. But what we didn't fully think through is when we legalized the industry that we had here, the industry we had here was primarily an export industry and had always been an export industry. And we've always produced, you know, Oregon and Northern California, um, according to Bo Whitney, who's one of the major economists in, in this field in the country, um, have probably produced 75 percent of the domestic cannabis for as far back as anybody can tell in, in the U.S. And so... Suddenly, when it got legal, all those folks jumped in, and now we were hemmed into a market of 3.9 million people. And, oh, my goodness, we have a million extra pounds of cannabis. And and it's not surprising. Um, and then we talk, turn around and say, oh, well, this is, you know, it's an oversupply problem. But it isn't really an oversupply problem. And if we think about it as an oversupply problem, the answers we come to inevitably hurt farmers, right? How do we have fewer of those people? How do we have, you know, few, fewer licenses, takeaway licenses, make them grow less? Right. And that's not economically, you know, a good idea, nor is it culturally, nor is it ethically a good idea after you invited these folks into the industry. What we really have is a market access problem. Under prohibition, illegally, we were accessing markets all over the country, the industry that existed here. Now we can't access those markets and suddenly prices have crashed. And everyone, everyone who does not have incredibly deep pockets and cannot stand to lose money for three or four years, everyone is on the verge of collapse or, or one bad quarter away from things going terribly wrong. And so, um, and when we look at it as a market access problem and a political problem, the answers we come to are very different. How do we get our political leaders to stand with us to demand access to these other markets that are either medical now or legal, adult use legal now or about to be legal mm -hmm. and contemplating how to create their own industry, right? At a time where you know, you can't bring product in. So you have states like Florida that, that even in their medical grow right now, they have to dehumidify huge spaces. Right, let's, let's break let's, it down. Like, what are the markets that are coming online that we feel like are, in addition to Florida, which I think is important to talk about, yeah. like, what are those markets that that have no legacy industry, that are setting up stuff from scratch? Oh, almost every place except Emma's, Oregon and California. Emma's seen what's happening yeah. in Oklahoma. Exactly. That now has 2,500 grower licenses for a population of 4 million and no tourist industry, and people are setting are up- canopy limits on that? Do you know? I'm, I don't think so. Um, people, no count, really. People are setting up- uh, Canopy limits, sorry, for the listeners, are uh, the amount you can grow. You know, like yeah. canopy being the canopy of the cannabis- Yeah, I mean, there we just saw a facility, uh, I was talking to a- a client about a facility that was 85,000 square feet. Good and then God. on the other end, there are people who are setting up grows in their What's shed the in their that? backyard because That's the there are go. truly no regulations, right. which is insane. But what what we're seeing is this this emerging industry where people are just getting into it because they think that they're going to make a lot of money. The green rush mentality still very much exists in emerging markets. Um, Those people should listen to this show. They should listen to this show because yeah. they don't understand that right now, yeah, you're getting $2,800 per pound because there's hardly any product on the market. In mm. a year, you will be lucky if you get $500 yeah. per pound. Yeah, um, and I mean, that's also like compounded with so many other issues of they just don't have the information. They don't have the experience. They don't understand how to grow. They don't understand how to mitigate different problems. So I think that there's going to be a lot of subpar product on the market, um, which would absolutely be remediated if they had access to Oregon cannabis. Right. And and we're not saying that folks in other states should not grow cannabis. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course. By by no means are we saying that. But but what we are saying is that the future of this industry is not 50 self-contained production industries. We don't do anything like that in this country. No market functions like that in this country. And once it is legal, right? Once the feds take the take, you know, once federal prohibition ends, um, this state protectionism will cease to exist, right? You cannot keep California oranges out of Florida. That's right. not how mm -hmm. our economy works, right? It doesn't exist in the wild. The reason that you have these self-contained state industries for the moment is is the remnants of a faltering and collapsing federal prohibition, right? And so right. there's no like full faith and credit protection, right? Or anything like that. And yeah. so it's a historical blip because of this sort of random remnant, which is you can't move product across a state border. Right. And so but once that happens, wherever you are growing cannabis, you will need to compete 
with cannabis from everywhere else in the country and eventually everywhere else in the world. And so, you know, I addressed, I was in last month, Washington, D.C., and I was I was honored to be invited um, to speak on a panel at the um, at the State Departments of Agriculture Conference, right? The National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. And so I got to speak to all 50 state directors of agriculture departments. And it was the only panel that they had at the whole conference on cannabis, but everyone was super interested it in it. Sounds like a real party. It was a party, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those I mean, guys know how to eat. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They, they bring it right out from the cornfields <laughs> right into the... And, and so it's old Those school. It's, it's old school yeah. partying. And, uh, but, you know, what we talked about a lot is that there is no product, basically, that we, agricultural product that we grow in all 50 states, right? I mean, right. you can feasibly, you can grow citrus in New York if you want. It's just a bad business decision, right? And mm-hmm. so, and there's a reason for that is that markets, you know, have markets when functioning have things grown or produced in the places where they're best produced or grown and right. sold to other places where it's more expensive or less efficient to grow or produce them, right? And so this is the future of the cannabis industry. The only question is, is that going to take two years or five years or 10 years? But if you are investing millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in in production capacity, or if you're a state like New York, say, billions of dollars. Yeah, let's, I mean, talking about the different, like, so there's like, there's Florida, which we can talk about. There's New York, which is huge. New Jersey, Mm -hmm. right And we should talk about what happened, what just happened up there as far as, yeah. And and so the question is, are you going to invest all that money? Is the future of this industry investing billions of dollars in a in a production industry in New York four times the size of Oregon's existing production industry, right? And um, and is that economically feasible? Is that environmentally sound? Um, and what's going to happen to you <laughs> the when the walls? No, no yeah. you're gonna you're gonna have to face. So you should be able to grow in all those states, but as long as you're growing in a way that understands you're now compete, you're going to compete very soon with everything else. And so what we see, I think, in a lot of those states, is our craft industries, right? Our locally grown craft, you know, craft cannabis products that are grown there or material brought in and produced there, where where the fact that it's local is a selling point, right? Just like here, and and but to do it at scale in those places is not going to ultimately be competitive. So, how do we move that more quickly before? See, so to back up a little bit to where we right. started yeah. here in Oregon. So we now have an economic crisis going on, right? Because we have a million extra pounds of cannabis, prices have collapsed, and we have some of the best growers in the world producing as efficiently as anyone in the world who don't have a market for their product. And we're looking at, our estimate is between half a billion and a billion dollars in local capital that is either has been wiped out or is on the in the process of being wiped out or is at risk, right? Mm-hmm. And you're not talking about a wealthy state. Right. And we're not talking about a billion dollars in Nike's local capital, right, or Intel's local capital. These are farmers and entrepreneurs and small investors and their families and friends. And a lot of that investment is centered in some of the poorest parts of the state in in rural regions, in rural counties. And so and it's an actual economic crisis. And so we look and say, okay, we need to do this quickly because we are watching the, 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 the local, you know, traditional community and land connected industry here being wiped out. And if we lose that, those people are not going to come back. They're not going to have a second chance at this. We're going to turn around and have a dozen out of state or international companies that, that, you know, control 90% of this market. And when the walls do come down, they will control a multi-billion dollar export market with, you know, Oregon cannabis under the Oregon brand, you know, but it's going to be some consortium in Toronto. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so we need to push. We need to push the natural process that's going to get us to interstate more quickly. And there's lots of reasons, not just for Oregon. It's not just oh, Oregon's all got all this weed they've got to dump. There's lots of reasons that I hope we'll talk about environmental reasons and economic reasons, which we touched on, yeah. and and patient access reasons why we should be able to move this. Why it's insane that we can't move this across borders. So let's talk about that. I mean, let's yeah, let's go ahead. I mean, let's. I, I think the to me. The most compelling part of this to me uh, is the environmental reason. Besides, I'm sorry, excuse me, besides sort of the economic horror right. and the misery that a lot of the people, especially in Southern Oregon, are, are going through right now. That's actually the most compelling to me. Right. But the second, the, you know, outside of that, the most compelling um, uh, reason to do this for me is the environmental uh, cost in a place like uh, that, a, that, a, that a, a cannabis market in Florida, a cannabis production, you know, at scale. Uh, in a state like Florida, which is incredibly humid, 
um, or a place like New York, which is just has the population, you know, to keep up with New York City's population or just the state of the state of New York. What how, how are you going to do that? You know, and 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 you have to do that indoors because New York, you know, is gets it's got seasons. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like right? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, there's it's, a reason, like you said, there's a reason you don't grow citrus in New York is right. because it's cold. Right. Six months of the year, right. you know, um, and um, and I feel like both from an ethical standpoint that we should be doing everything we can to sort of mitigate, you know, the, the cannabis industry would be incredibly wise to mitigate its energy use and sort of its environmental responsibility, both for it's the right thing to do, but also it's good politics. Right. And it's economically sound because energy costs money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so. So t let's talk about that. I mean, like, what are, you know, what are some of the, um, and then I, I do want to get to the bill itself because there's been a lot of great progress on it, and that's why I asked you to come in, but let's, Not know, just because you like whatever. me. The yeah, I do, on. yeah. No, I don't really don't like you, actually, very much. I just, you know, but no, of course, I love you. Um, and so, so right, so these these are these markets that, um, that, that to me, so again, I'm sorry, that to me is the most compelling reason to do this. Uh, and it's always been incredibly, that's always been a very, like, uh, very important to me is that uh, we should do as much as we can to mitigate, you know, to, to honor our environmental responsibility, which is why groups like Resource Innovation Institute, right. or, um, you know, other, other sorts of groups like that are, I think, doing such great work. But what do you have to what you know? Tell us more. You know more about this than I do. I just have an opinion. You have the so I would the I would facts. I would like to pile on the shout out to Derek Smith and the yeah. Resource Innovation yes. Institute. Yes. They're amazing, yes. and they're you know the great thing about this is cannabis is the right product, is the right vehicle to talk about economic fairness and racial justice and environmental sustainability and social um, consciousness, right? Because that's what cannabis is, right? Cannabis brings people together and adds value to their lives. And the and the thought that cannabis will be, you know, sort of corporatized and, and extracted from a, these communities. I mean, it's such a it's metaphor for like oh. income inequality right. and the, the whole sort thing. of consolidation of corporate power, and, you know. Yeah. And, um, and, and this is a great place to start setting our feet because it is so high profile, right? And it and it brings together cultures and it brings together various issues and it's important to people. And cannabis and it's a plant. And it shouldn't be basically taken out of the hands of people in some cynical shift from prohibition where we really, you know, and to be to be fair and to be, you know, like I am not against, you know, I'm I'm one of those people who's like, let's see what acreage holdings does. Right. I'm not I'm not reflexively no, anti acreage holdings. Is, and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, business prowess that those kinds of groups can bring as far as distribution and retail 100%. and a hundred different mm -hmm. things they can add value so, to our industry. So, but they're not farmers. They're right. in Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Right. And here and, and, and our thought about that is is look, you know, Oregon, I look at Oregon. So so this is really about Oregon and Northern California, right? That is the 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 cannabis basket, the bread basket sure. of, of mm -hmm. American cannabis, right? And 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 the communities that have been there that have been growing for generations. But those communities are, in, it, for the most part, they are not going to lead the world in production of generic tonnage of cannabis, right? That is not, those farmers are not going to supply, you know, the vast majority of low price, you know, value Chwag. cannabis. They're going to, Say that, yes. Right. They are going to. They are going to. Is that I think that's fine. Sounds like sounds like you looked at me like I like used a slur. You know, it's like can I say something wrong? Can you say that on the air? Yeah. And so we 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 are we are under no illusions, nor do we think it would be a great idea for the these corporations that are getting into this not to be able to participate in the market. Of course. And but I think that what we're looking at is and the ability for them to be able to move product between states is incredibly valuable mm -hmm. and they should be able to do that but what we but we are take we are coming at this from the perspective of um, of the, the the natural and traditional constituency of growers in this country who are growing some of the best product in the world and should be at the top shelf of every market yeah. where even if those markets overall by by weight are dominated by acreage holdings and those and those folks and that's like i said that's fine but you can do that without wiping out what is real and authentic in this country, and, and that is and, why we and, make and, best, and by the way, best quality and best quality, right? In, like in the world right now. I mean, right. there you can't find anywhere better than the Oregon Northern California nexus for quality. What, um, do, what do we think of Bud Basket? Do we do we like that? We'll workshop that. Okay. Silence. <laughs> um, <laughs> <yeah>. So, <laughs> so, so here we are. So you asked yeah. me a question, and eventually I have. Yeah, yeah. I try to get back to the. We're question. all drinking <laughs> our coffee and getting off topic. It's a little yeah. early. Um, so, so you have a whole bunch of states that are thinking about, talking about, 
have bills about that are on the verge of legalizing, right? Um, and they have to look at what is the future of the, what are they setting up, right? What are they what what kind of industry are they bringing their state into, right? And we are urging them to understand as they as they um, start to do this that, like I said, you're not going to have that state protection forever, and so um, and so they need to anticipate that part of their market at least is going to be product that gets brought in from right. other places. Um, you have Nevada right now, which is sort of the screaming example where they're using water in the desert to grow what I what right. I am what I am assured is mediocre. Mm-hmm. That's the they're the biggest cannabis. one to me that it's just right. sort of like a gro- I mean I think Las Vegas is a gross place. I'm like how do you where is all this le- I, I, electricity coming from? Hey like Vegas, this, you know? I love you Vegas. Don't die. this is not, not a problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan. Not that's, a fan. that's fine yeah, but yeah. but but right now they're, they're, there's no water. There's no water, right? Mm-hmm. And cannabis uses water. Yeah. And so, and they're using water in a place they don't have it to grow cannabis that is of mediocre quality and selling for incredibly high prices. Right. While right across the border, we can actually drive directly into Nevada from Oregon. Right across the border, we have a million pounds of cannabis that's going to rot that was grown with water that is abundant. Um, that right. was grown, mm-hmm. prob- that, w- that can be sold to them at wholesale probably cheaper than they're growing it. Right. right. I mean, that's that's insane. You have Florida, which has medical and is now looking to, looking at you know the probability of the next couple of years of going legal, where they have to dehumidify they enormous spaces. Florida. Right. They, have, they you know, and so you have. Yeah, you have but it's. Our, I mean, as someone I grew up in Atlanta, and and I've tr- I've vacationed a lot in Florida, and in, in you know as a child, and mm-hmm. even through high school, it's the most humid place on earth. You know, and cannabis doesn't like that. No, it it no. molds, right? And mm-hmm. so, and so you have well, you got bugs. I mean, there's you know you have a all whole that. number of states where it's not environmentally sane or rational or smart to be growing cannabis, and and so that's number one. And 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 again, that'll end up getting them wiped out economically when the walls come down. So right. let's 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 look at at proactively let's how think to ahead. set that up. Yeah, right. Let's, let's then plan you have for four years, five years. It's, make... it's so interesting to me that the all the issues that Oregon is going through now, where it, the system was effectively set up to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are trying to mitigate that that now by looking towards the future and seeing all these other markets that are once the federal prohibition is ended will are then have been set up to fail right does that make sense yeah. you know yes. like so it's like and, and you know we're like the we're like the ghost of christmas past right here. and what we're trying to we're s- jacob marley walking around in chains and, being like and, you know uh change your ways watch us that you'll, you'll be dragging this yeah. chain of you know of right of of pre-rolls for eternity yeah, across, yeah. across and the, and nice. so the um and so what we're looking to do here in Oregon and then spread this out is we are saying to people, why don't we plan for success? What does this industry look like if it was successful? And then how do we get there from here? Right. Right. Why do we and do so, everything on such an ad hoc basis? Right. And so, but we've been so, you know, to everyone's credit and especially OLCC and the legislature and the governor, this has been a Herculean task. We are pulling an industry, you know, part of an industry out of a hundred years of prohibition while a whole new part of that industry cleaves itself. There's no, there's no real Sui roadmap for this. Yeah. Right. There's no roadmap. There's no, so, um, so everyone has worked really, really hard. Right. And, and I think, 99% of the people with the best of intentions um, trying to make this work, but we've been so inundated with how do we um, how do we institute this new industry? How do we how do we launch this? We've been too busy with that to look at, okay, what does success look like? And now that we're sort of getting to this point here uh, in Oregon where we're, the market is maturing, we can start looking at, okay, how do we not have a disaster here and give away this industry that's mm-hmm. been here and been important here for you know we have members that and are really second and third it. generation growers really diluted what a what a shame it would be if it just turned out to be mass produced right swag right under cannabis. the Oregon label yeah you know because that's because that's the only people who had any money so okay so let's get to the bill you guys have right. made uh, the one fix campaign which right. is Oregon needs export, export right and we're, we're, we're one fix.org you can go to one find out and you can go to craft cannabis alliance.org um, and uh, I want to publicly thank um, uh, Karen fish my wife who okay. on her off her not copious off time from having a six-year-old and having a serious policy job mm-hmm. um, is also been helping me with um, everything, but the mm. web and the, that kind of stuff. Because uh, so we introduced this bill. It is a um, two years ago, Senator Floyd Przanski introduced a bill that would have allowed the governor to approve interstate transfers of cannabis. Um, it would have required that those states be 
contiguous with us. Mm-hmm. It it had some other restrictions in it, and and for its time, it was two years ago. It was very forward thinking, yeah, and it was so radical that it didn't even get out of committee. Right. So, in the last year, we have done a lot of work talking to legislators and folks in OLCC and in the and shaping executive and branch reshaping. and and discussing where we are, right? And that we have this economic crisis and what is the future of this industry? And once people start thinking about this, it becomes pretty obvious. And then what we did was we, we, we uh, Senator Przensky reintroduced the bill. We had a work group and we amended it. We rewrote a, a lot of it to make it broader than it originally was. And and I want to thank Senator Przensky for his leadership on this. And he's mm-hmm. really been thank you. Yeah, he has been Senator a real champion for the for the state and for the industry. And we cannot thank him enough. Um, and uh, and and so in the new iteration of the bill, we we are allowing the executive to approve interstate transfers to any state under an interstate agreement, meaning that the two states have to agree to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as long as the federal government has given some level of either permission or indicated tolerance. And this is really important, right? So this was going to be a requirement regardless. There were no two governors that were going to send people out interstate to get mowed down by the federal government, right? So we need some level of acquiescence from the feds. But in cannabis... Um, most most of the things we are doing are not codified under federal statute, mm-hmm. right? There's no federal statute protecting the state industries, mm-hmm. right? The the adult use industries. And listeners who are who want to look up something called the States Act could see, you know, that there's actually a bill in Congress that could change that, that could change for that. what you know parenthetically. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's okay. And so, um, and so, the the trigger for this bill is that the federal government either protect interstate transfers in statute and we are already working with folks um with folks on capitol hill in congress uh to see if we can get interstate transfers included in bills like the states act right or the second way that it could happen is for the department of justice through the attorney general to issue whether they issue a new coal type memo memo. or make a policy statement that says look if you are operating under state laws this will be a low enforcement We're priority. Our blind eye and, effectively. And that is all of the protection that the entire adult use legal industry in this country has, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't need a statute. We just need the Department of Justice to say, look, we're not stopping you from doing your your state industries. We're not going to stop you from moving cannabis between those state industries. Now, we think that there is a path to get there through a Republican administration and through a Republican controlled Senate. But we also think very strongly that the Democrats have I'm really taking on cannabis reform as a as a party wide issue, and we are about to have. It's the default position uh, right. of the Democratic Party. It is the default mm-hmm. position, right? And you and you're not going to actually. The interesting thing is you're not going to get very far in the Democratic primaries if you're still talking about arresting people for cannabis, mm-hmm. right. even if it's not everybody's most important issue. It signals you as either a progressive thing yep. or not, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, because we have issues like economic crisis on the farms here in Northern California environmental degradation, you know, access for patients. We haven't even begun talking about some of the equity issues that are, I right. think, are really important. Which we'll get to. We, our goal is by two, by the 2020 election to make, to make it obvious to the Democrats that part of protecting the state industries in an intelligent way is to allow consenting states to move product between their secure systems, right? That there's no reasonable reason to stop that from happening. And so we believe that by 2021, after the election, if the Democrats have taken the Senate, we will get this through as part of the States Act or whatever they pass. Because it will take them years, I think, to tear down federal prohibition. But when they get in, they will immediately protect what exists, right? So we want to be part of that protection. Or that a democratically elected attorney, uh, attorney general yeah, yeah. right, will appoint an attorney general that will say, yes, you can do this. So we think that's the path by 2021. I think, as I said, there are faster paths. This It's not totally impossible that the Republican Party picks this up they're making noises like they might and so and and that's then is about capitalism free trade right that's those are republican issues so it's about how we frame it and talk about it so that's the goal and so we have just last week um got the the rewritten bill uh approved on a five to two bipartisan vote out of the senate judiciary committee that was a very big deal it was our first hurdle and maybe our biggest hurdle just to just be clear this is the in, the interstate export the interstate bill S- just because we're, we're going talking yeah, about yeah. covering a, gra- a lot of ground i'll be clear for our listeners thank yeah. you yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah sb 582 senate yep. bill 582 um which does this and so it it passed out of the judiciary senate judiciary committee mm-hmm. um and uh and i think that it's going to have bipartisan support on the Senate floor, and it was recommended to the Senate floor where they do pass recommendation. And so it will go to the Senate floor. Um, we are feeling very 
good about its yeah, chance. I think of everybody's housing. feeling really good mm-hmm. about it. And then it will go to the House and it will go to a committee there, probably economic development. We don't know yet. And then we will start that process again. But I think that the work that we have done over the past 10 months in changing how people are thinking and talking about this issue has been the reason why it's now obvious. It feels easy to everybody. Oh, of course this is going to pass because it makes total sense. But it really was about just changing the framing and having people see it in a way that sounded reasonable. And it is reasonable. Nothing is easy in this industry. And that's so important. I mean, public perception is everything. That's even the reason why more of these conservative states are now creating public access programs to medical marijuana because of the perception shift where, I mean, even just a few years ago, a majority of the population, the American population, believed that it was still like dangerous and ooh and bad. And then you start to talk about the different kind of intersectionalities and you come to like, wait, but why? That's just kind of made up. And that's the same thing here of like, oh, we can't cross state lines, but that's just like, why? Just because we can't, you know? And so that shift in public perception really helps to mobilize it on a legislative level, which is really exciting. It is. It is really exciting. And it's why that the campaign I keep saying, you know, this is a political campaign at some level, but it's really, it's really um, a narr- It's really about narratives. It's really about telling the story because the more we talk about this, the more obvious it becomes to folks. Mm-hmm. And that is our game, right? If we went right now to the Department of Justice, we would be laughed at, right, at this moment because right. it hasn't quite solidified there. But we're no. moving it in that direction. Bill Barr is not the more. Um, although Bill Barr came progressive. out. I mean, I get, yeah, he did come out well, yesterday or the day before right. and said, Bill Barr, the, the attorney general, mm-hmm. and said, it was basically kind of reiterated the Cole memo, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so we need to add this piece to that. And so, and again, the more, the, the, the gratifying thing as an activist for me, as, a, as an organizer, has been, you know, doing this kind of stuff and drug policy in other places for a lot of years, is I sit down with folks who, when we sit down, think I have three heads and what I'm talking about is totally impossible and radical. And 30 minutes in, they're like, okay, where do I sign? We're going to do this. And it it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it really is about telling those stories and framing. And so the nice thing that's happened for us is that we've been able to really engage the media, which has covered this really, really well. Indeed. And they've and they've really thought about, we've been able to make them really Emma look just at- Emma p- published an article A terrific article. Ago. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, I wanted to mention that and, when I came uh, on. That was a great piece. Was it piece. Forbes or was it Green no, Entrepreneur? No, Green Entrepreneur. Green Entrepreneur. Tell yeah. us about that piece, Emma, yeah, yeah. so I can stop okay. talking. Hold on, yeah, 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 hold on. We, we need to go to a break in just a second here because we're coming up on some time. But yeah, so Emma Emma did a great uh, piece Thank you, gentlemen. on that. I appreciate that. Pete Danko from the PBJ, from the Portland Business Journal, has doing is, great is, work. He's on this a lot, which I appreciate. Andrew mm-hmm. Selsky from the Associated Press mm-hmm. has done a terrific mm. job covering this. Um, the Scanner has started to cover it, and which is really important in uh, communities of color. And of course, and you were in Rolling Stone magazine. We, we got uh, a big little, piece of Rolling Stone magazine. Manish Lewis they, uh, wrote up that nice piece. Yeah, no, that it's was, been it's been overwhelming. And and the nice thing is that again. It's such a nice story to tell because the media is getting it. Business Insider did a terrific piece, like mm-hmm. a six-minute video piece, and they told the whole story. And that tells me the fact that the media un- is understanding this thing tells me that we are going to win. Yeah. All right. Yes. Let's take a break there, and then we're going to come back and talk about more of all of this. Um, you are listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM. This is Cannabis is brought to you by the Craft Cannabis Alliance. The Craft Cannabis Alliance is a network of values-driven, Oregon-owned companies committed to defining, supporting, and celebrating authentic craft cannabis and building an industry dedicated to people, place, planet, and plant. The Alliance is leading the fight for interstate commerce in legal cannabis through the One Fix campaign. Export is the centerpiece of a successful Oregon industry that will support hundreds of farms and dozens of companies, providing world-class artisan products to legal markets and cannabis lovers everywhere. All right, and we are back. If you are just joining us, you are listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. Uh, my name is Lee Henderson, and with me in the studio is my co-host, Emma Chasen, and our guest today is Adam Smith, uh, the founder and executive director of the Craft Cannabis Alliance. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you for being you. This me? Is, yeah. Do we, do we have a time limit? Can we just do this all we, week? We can just, yeah, we're just, you know, I mean, we, it won't, it won't it. air, but we can just hang out. You know? um, so we left off talking about sort of the, the really warm and, and I think um, 
well done sort of political narratives or uh, or or, or um, you know narratives regarding this issue. Um, I want to take it away from that. I want to talk about a. Uh, sort of still the progress that you guys are seeing and, and we'll just go back over that for a second because I don't feel like we fully covered it uh, about how well the bill is doing and um, how exciting that is and and then I'd like to take it then to what comes next um, and then there are some subcategories within what comes next I feel like we should talk about but so so the bill is doing well SB 582 I'm sorry that yeah right yep uh, it looks like to be on I mean you know this bittersweet but it looks like the cannabis legislation that seems like it's going to pass this thing do you do you have a feeling for any of the other stuff like social consumption or the you know it's been a little bit of a hard session for some of the cannabis yeah. mm. um issues there's there's a lot of cannabis fatigue in yeah. the legislature um there isn't necessarily um uh, unfortunately there has not been sort of a unifying industry voice on some of these issues i think i think social consumption suffered a little bit from that although i would say it suffered more from um, the public health lobby yeah. being yeah, yeah. very um, digging in their heels on it. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there are some things we think are um, are still moving forward. And I don't want to use this to, you know. Yeah, right. Um, but, but we think that this is going to be probably... We think it's going to pass, and we think it's going to be the major. Because the, la cause the last time you were on was, you know, half a year or more ago, and this was just sort of a theoretical exercise. We didn't even at have a point. we didn't even have a bill. Yeah, I mean, we had a, an old bill that we couldn't use. Right. We needed to, mm -hmm. So yeah, no, it, it's been huge it's, progress. It's yeah. been it's been really gratifying, and it's been amazing, an amazing opportunity to sit down with a lot of people who in the state, in government and out of government, who really care about this industry. And to sit with them and talk about what that future looks like. And that's been the most fun thing for me. And I think that the success of the bill is sort of the natural outgrowth of just getting people to look at this a little differently. And that's what I do, right? And right. so, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a lobbyist, right, per se. I'm, I'm lobbying this bill. But... Um, You're a song and dance man. I'm mostly a song and dance man. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And... and <laughs> I do a little stand up on the game recognized game, bro. <laughs> right, you know, that's you, what I'm saying. Right. Oh you know? my god! So, so, uh, so where was I? Oh, <laughs> yeah. so it's going to go to so the house. Let's, yeah, and yeah. we're very excited about that because we have uh, we have strong Democratic support, but we also have bipartisan support. Um, uh, Carl Wilson, the minority leader, the Republican minority leader, is a is a state rep from the Grants Pass area, and he's got a lot of farms in his district, a lot of the producing region down there in Williams. Yeah. And His constituency he is, has and, been, I'm and, sure, hammered. And he is terrific on this. Yeah. And he is, and when we sat down and talked about it, at first we talked a lot about this being a market-driven approach, you know, sort of a, 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 an elegant Reagan-esque solution to yeah. all of these problems where, you know, we could try to regulate this into oblivion, but the real answer is to allow markets to function, which is actually true in this case. And he's been fantastic and a real leader. And so um, we feel that we have strong support there. And the governor a few weeks ago put out a statement that we could only qu uh, quantify as as supportive. She's mm. saying we uh, she believes that the folks who are working on this want the state to be prepared when the federal government moves forward. And mm -hmm. and um, uh, Shamia Fagan on the on the Senate Judiciary Committee in that hearing basically echoed those words. She said, this is about having the state ready so that we are first in line and ready to participate in the interstate economy that's coming. Can I ask you, before we get to what comes, I guess it's part of the what comes next question, but I'm curious, um, what's the pushback from from business? If I, we, you know, we've discussed some of the, mm -hmm. the political pushback, but what's the pushback from other other players that don't want to see export? Um, well, the, I've, I've had more pushback from folks who don't believe that it will happen, okay, right? I mean, that's sort of the thing is getting past that disbelief because it seems like, you know, when I started working on this, I have, I have, I have twenty five years of relationships in the drug policy reform movement, and I started getting on the phone with folks as we were starting to move on this, and their initial response is, "Well, nobody I know in the movement is working on this, so it can't be real." And then, <laughs> and then, and then, but over the last few months, suddenly it's real, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think that within the industry, there is a small um, but deep pocketed segment of the industry of companies whose valuation depends a lot on the number of different states that they can produce in. We have production in 12 states or six states or seven states. We have these licenses. Mm -hmm. And the more states you have licenses to produce in, the more you can, you know, build up your valuation yeah, yeah, on yeah. that on paper. But, um, but I think that, and, and I think that some of those folks will dig in to try to delay this as long as possible to, because it's inevitable that the walls come down because federal prohibition is ending, right? And 
Uh, but but I think that there'll be forces that will try to delay this as long as possible so they can get as much value as they can. Because, I, I mean, I imagine, you know, I mean, everyone looks at New York State and they just see, like, you remember in the old cartoons where everyone's, there, you know, there are two people, they're starving, and they one guy looks at the other guy and he just turns into a turkey leg. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's how everybody looks at New York. They're yeah. like, oh, my God. And so all these companies that want to go, and, and they obviously have to set up production facilities. They don't want Oregon Cannabis no. to come in. They, you know, like... And, and especially and, the six states, that the six companies that are there doing medical now that have right. some level of production, and they kind of position themselves to think that, oh, we're going to get the initial licenses and we'll just transition right into rec and we'll increase in size by 100 times and boom, there we got it. Um, so yeah, I think that there's definitely that kind of pushback. And what we're trying to do tactically in this campaign is um, we're not pushing to bring product into Colorado, right? Or states that have mature right. production. You know, mm-hmm. that'll happen, but, but there's no reason to pick those fights right we need we the key is that we need one state we need to move product with the knowledge of the federal government from one state to one other state once we do that we're in a different world now we're just arguing about how much and how many times and what how many states right and and so um but new york you know this is a this is a big question are they just going to hand that over and i think what you're seeing in new york there there are deeper issues there so let's talk about that all right sorry and then we'll get to what comes next yeah. because i keep pushing that back off but like so something interesting just happened in new york new jersey yeah tell us about it uh legislators of color stood up and said actually you're not going to legalize and hand this money all over to a bunch of corporations which um, is awesome yeah. which is it was, awesome. it was a great move uh, yeah. yeah and and even though it will push back legalization in New York and more people will be arrested, right? They have, we have one shot in states like that to set this up. Mm-hmm. And the level of injustice and racial inequity has, is so deep mm-hmm. and so ingrained and so profound that it is vitally important that we set this up. And that is what um, uh, legislators of color um, in New York stood up and said, look, expungement is great, but... You know, you have, you have, you know, made it almost impossible for two generations of our kids to get educations, housing, jobs. You yeah. have arrested. The war on drugs it, is devastated. In New York City, where I come from, mm-hmm. over a twenty-year period, they there were four hundred and thirty thousand marijuana arrests in New York City. Low-level marijuana arrests in New York City, just in the city in twenty years. Eighty-six percent of those arrests were of people of color. Right, yeah. eighty-five to ninety percent of them were twenty-five and under. It w- cannabis prohibition was a, was was a was a system for putting for poor social control black right yes. p- through yeah. through the system. And and I can guarantee you that eighty-five percent or eighty-six percent of the cannabis being sold in New York State was not being sold by people of color. Right, all kinds of white kids. Mm-hmm. Right, selling and using cannabis in their communities in total safety. Right, in basically relative mm-hmm. safety. Mm-hmm. Right, and so the people who don't get stopped and frisked. Right. right. People right. who don't get stopped in first. And so um, and so you look, especially on the East Coast, where you had these. I mean, the the disparity in the racial disparity in street level arrests is real in every single state in this country. There is not a state that had that had that were in proportion to the population. Right. Um, but the sheer numbers on the East Coast were so were so shocking. Right. That that um, it's important to address it. And as those states are starting to legalize. How do we move forward in a way that acknowledges that and that doesn't just say, okay, well, we'll expunge your records and now we're going to give all the money for this industry that you suffered for over to a bunch of board, you know, boards of directors in various parts. So um, they said, no, no, that's fine, but we want the money. Right. And so and there's a bunch of there's a bunch of ideas about how to help people get licenses and, and all the ways we can support you know, minority businesses or folks who have records, not just minorities, but folks who have been harmed by the drug war, right? But it's really interesting. And and, and so I cheered when they didn't get steamrolled, right? And they right. stood up mm-hmm. and said, this, this, not, you're not going to do this to us, right? And, but there's a, there's a story here that we're, we're just starting to tell and we want to sort of bring some folks together. So we have a community out here in Northern California and Oregon, right? The, in Oregon... We were also arresting, you know, people of color four to one on the street for street level, you know, stuff, um, which is absurd. And there are things going on here with expungement that are that are 
being somewhat helpful. But the real action out here was that we were a producing region, right? The real drug war action, the real big federal money particularly was spent, you know, with, on helicopters in the hills and right. asset forfeiture and taking raids. people's farms and raids and yada, yada. because we were supplying the country with cannabis. Yep. And so that community, right, who's, who some of whose parents were in jail, for, you know, were in jail for this, um, they are also victims of the drug war. They look very different than the communities on the East Coast, but they were on opposite ends of the traditional supply chain. We were on the producing end, and in New York and New Jersey, those kids were not getting arrested for growing weed in their closets. Sales and distribution. Sales and distribution and consumption, right? right. And so I believe that that to begin to look at what an economically and racially just post-prohibition future is, is that we want to bring together those communities, those producer communities from here, and the communities in New York that are standing up to try to figure out how to do this well, and and say, let us let us bring those two ends of the traditional supply chain, who are both, by the way, being pushed out of this industry by the exact same economic forces, right? We want to bring that together and start a conversation. What does it look like? We grow the best weed in the world, and they've been arrested for you know distributing that in population centers, and so. How do we put that together in a way now that the market's legal to make sure that those two communities are not just allowed to participate in the market, right, but are front and center in that market? We're talking 100 years of prohibition. There is a lot to make up for. Mm-hmm. And distributing and selling the the top shelf, mm-hmm. again, like the best quality, making sure that that's not erased and, in fact, put in the hands of the people whose communities have been destabilized in their pursuit of right. providing their communities with the best R- right. medicine. Because if, if the locus of power in the industries, in the cannabis industries in places like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, right, if the locus of power is about who gets to grow it, it's going to be folks that have act, that have swaths of land that can put together $50 million grow facilities, mm-hmm. right? That That is not mostly oppressed communities. Right. And so um, and but, you know, if you think about it, we could supply retail and distribution on the East Coast day one of uh, right with with world class products. If we were working in a in a program with with minority run companies or companies that were going to give back and do something. So it's a conversation that we're at the beginning of. But I have a strong belief that the road to equity leads through the communities that have traditionally that have been, been mostly, part of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah you got to, that's, that's such, such compelling narrative. I'm so excited to, you like, know? we're so excited to start working with folks like patients. And, you and, know, it's, and it's, it's, it's great, it's great, you know, because it's great, but it's also, to me, it's great because it's, you know, I got into the cannabis uh, space um for because I saw it as like an engine of social change yeah. and and you know in various uh, you know various sort of just justice movements and and sort of the count as a as an, ex, a, an expression of countercultural values and all that stuff and and I'll admit I mean I'm so jaded at this point I mean both because I believe that we live in a demoralized time just generally mm-hmm. you know uh, that I don't feel like anything's possible you know I'm so tired I'm so exhausted from all the fights you know. Uh, but also seeing what's happened to the Oregon system, which has been so, um, so awful. Uh, I'm so thankful that you're doing the work that you're doing because it sort of it sort of re-inspires me a little bit. You know what I mean? And, and when you especially when you talk about bringing, you know, inner city dealers with, you know, southern Oregon growers. I mean, that is like that's uh, it's the conversation. Imagine all the people, man, you know, mm-hmm. so. Uh, and and I don't have enough of that in my life these days, and I don't know that a lot. I feel like I, I imagine a lot of people feel that way too. You know, I mean, it's uh, people. I, I'm ex- people are exhausted. People are demoralized, yeah. especially people who are who are looking at their businesses struggle to survive and watching you know money that they pull together from again friends and family and anywhere they could find it to dive into this with all good intentions and incredible talent um, and and a real understanding of how to do it and now. They don't see a, a a way out except for a collapse or maybe getting bought out for pennies, and it's just it's dark and depressing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. yet, and um, and that's been again the kind of the fun part of this, right? Is yeah. is is taking my activist soul and sort of sharing it and being like, we there there's a way forward. You know, maybe there's a way forward. There's at least something important to work. On and a, and a message to get out, and, it, and it's based in real politics. I mean, these are yes. these are completely yeah. um, achievable yep. goals. Yeah, yes. I mean that's the whole thing. I, it's it, not 
you know, you're not some crazy person who's like, we're going to give all the weed away, so, you know. So just to just to 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 give some context to that. Um, so back in 1998, I was working in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was publishing. Um, I was part of an organization called DRCNet. It's now called StopTheDrugWar.org. Uh, and I was publishing a news magazine that covered an online news magazine that covered the drug war drug policy from the reform side. And it was the only thing, there was no Huffington Post, it was sort of the only thing out right. there and the internet was new, right? And so we were a little bit of a, of a center. And in 1998, Bill Clinton signed the Higher Education Act, which was a 1,200 page bill. But part of that act was um, eliminated federal financial aid eligibility for any drug conviction, right? So if you were 15 years old and got popped with a dime bag, you were now lifetime ineligible for federal financial aid. So we're going to punish you by making sure you can't educate yourself. And I thought, this is the stupidest. Literally, in the midst of the drug war legislation, which was insane and disheartening, this was maybe the stupidest thing I'd ever yeah. seen. And, and, so, cr- and cruel. And cruel, yes. right. And right, wantonly cruel, right? And so um, and so we wrote. I wrote a resolution and uh, sent it out to the on our list of 20-some thousand. We had 1,200 or so EDU addresses, and we had a, a student discussion list. I sent out this resolution. I said, take this to your student governments and take it to your administrations and get them to sign on to this and say this can't stand. And so that, the, the Higher Education Act Reform Campaign, you know, got a lot of momentum. We had hundreds of campuses ultimately got involved, and it was the first piece of drug war legislation that was ever rolled back in the country, right? And it was rolled back piecemeal a little at a time. Um, and it's still, there's still, if you still get a drug felony while you are getting financial aid, you will lose your financial aid. But but it has been narrowed considerably. And so, and out of that, we launched a lot of, together launched something called Students for Sensible Drug Policy, right. Right? which is in like 30 countries now. And so, you know, out of that experience, um, I am I it, it I'm hopeful, right? Th- there are ways to do this. It's not insane. We can roll back right. legislation. We can change legislation, and that's what we're doing. It's it's practical, yeah. you know, activism. Yeah, I really mm-hmm. uh, we I we really appreciate it. Yes, because it also like we are still just at the beginning. Yeah, we're still just at the beginning of not only uh, a federal uh, economy, cannabis economy, but also a global cannabis economy. And what you're doing is like laying the groundwork for good practices moving forward in that. So appreciated. Uh, we hope so. Thank you. Um, I think we're almost out of time. Indeed. Yeah. So we do like to ask our question, our guests, this same question every time. So we will ask it to you as well. Um, what is your definition of quality cannabis? Cannabis that's somebody I love hands me to smoke. Hmm, I that's love a good that. answer. No one's that's ever said really that before. Yeah. People get way into like terpenes and stuff, which is also important. But that's when I'm hanging out with people I love and Mm -hmm. it comes around and somebody hands it to me. That's quality, man. It feels good. Yeah, it feels good. Nice. All right. Well, let's leave it there on that on that sunny note. Um, (laughs) uh, Adam Smith of the Craft Cannabis Alliance and the One Fix campaign. How can people find you online? Uh, CraftCannabisAlliance.org, OneFixCannabis.org. But follow us on social, Our Craft Future. Right on all the social mm. channels, and um, before we get off, can I can I be the one that says radio is yours? Indeed. Okay, you um, let me just point to me. Okay, <laughs> we'll I want to mess it up. Uh, uh, you are listening to this is cannabis on X Ray FM, and we'll be right back. Radio is yours. Money. This is Cannabis is brought to you by the Open Cannabis Project. The Open Cannabis Project is an independent nonprofit whose mission is to build a transparent and open source platform of cannabis data. Thanks to nearly 80 years of prohibition, cannabis is suffering from a bad case of both misinformation and missing information. The Open Cannabis Project is on a mission to fill this information gap, creating a public records database that can help bring fairness and transparency to everything from intellectual property disputes to lab result issues. Learn how you can donate your anonymized chemical data and help fill the information gap at opencannabisproject.org. Thank you for staying with us. You were listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. My name is Lee Henderson, and with me is Emma Chasen, the founder of Eminent Consulting. And now is the time when we make recommendations. Sweet. So I'm going to recommend a cannabis product today. Uh, It is the first physician-formulated product that has hit the market in Oregon. I hope to have that naturopathic doctor who started this company on our show. I think we will. Um, 
but it is an incredible line of tinctures that are made with not only like amazing full spectrum cannabis extract um, with uh, mixed ratios of THC and CBD, mostly CBD dominant with just a little bit of THC in there. Um, as well as other supportive botanicals specifically designed for symptom relief. And it is honestly the best product that I have ever tried for symptom relief. I mean, it is the most medicinal uh, cannabis experience that I've ever had with each of her tinctures. She has four of them in the line. The company is called Protanicals. Uh, I am specifically in love with the digest formula for like my like weird digestive which system. Which one is that? Which, which, uh, I have the seven to one. Which so one that's that? Emerge, which is amazing. And it has yeah. like ashwagandha and uh, turmeric and, yeah, and, it's very spicy. and other amazing. And again, the best CBD medicine that I have ever tried, the most effective. Uh, and this is not an ad like it was right. in are, whatsoever. Yeah. Um, this is truly from my own experience, the best that I've tried. She's a friend, but we have lots of friends and we don't typically go this far. <laughs> exactly. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't unless yeah. it, it was true. And this is true. I mean, the digest formula, uh, that one I believe is a five to one okay. CBD to THC, and it has a uh, supportive botanicals such as lemon and lemon peel um, and different bitters uh, to help aid in digestion. Really cool kind of new research that's coming out uh, is showing that bitter receptors are actually overlaid kind of like over endocannabinoid receptors. And so there is certain theory that if you activate your bitter receptors in your body that you may thereby activate your cannabinoid receptors, vice versa. Uh, So really like wonderful targeted medicine, truly the best that I have ever tried for digestive issues. Um, She is slowly getting out there now she's um, a one woman show she's a one woman show she's amazing yeah. dr sheena uh vanderplog but uh look out for it on shelves it's gonna start creeping out protanicals tincture line yeah. if you are looking for good cbd medicine uh in the oregon market that's the best i strongly co-sign this uh your recommendation Thank uh you. It, I, we were both kind of beta tested her product and just i absolutely love Love it. And um, and we're trying to book her on the show now. We're trying to make our schedules line up. Hell so yes. So we look forward to actually hopefully speaking with Dr. Sheena Badina, as I call her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, soon. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Um, my recommendation is uh, a book I read while I was on vacation. Uh, it was, uh, I found it to be very profound. Um, it's a book about sobriety. It's about a book about alcoholism and then it's a book about sobriety. Uh, it's called The Recovering by a woman named uh, Leslie Jameson. And uh, she's got a really, really interesting story. I really, this book really had an effect on me and really resonated with me. So she's, um, she went to Harvard and then got a PhD in, uh, from Yale. And she was part of the Iowa Writers Workshop. So very strong pedigree. Uh, But also her experiences with alcohol very uh, closely mirrored mine, which, um, which again, I found deeply relatable. And, you know, this is a, she's a very, very, very high functioning person, you know? And, and so this, the book is, and so what's interesting to me, book, so the book is half memoir, mm. uh, about her experience with alcohol, uh, and the, and, and recovery and relapse. And, 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 and she tell, definitely tells the story of, of drinking for a long time before that. So it's, you know, um, but what's interesting to me is that she also got her, when she got her PhD from Yale, it was on, uh, write, writers who were in recovery or writers who were alcoholics, um, which is a really, really, really interesting kind of subcategory of mm-hmm. authors because, and she focused, she focuses on, uh, Dennis Johnson, Raymond Chandler, Raymond Carver, John Cheever, um, a lot of these, you know, a little bit of Faulkner, a little bit of Hemingway, and like all these sort of, you know, most mostly men, but there are some um, some women in there too. I mean, she's she she definitely speaks about a lot of different authors uh, who had you know raging drinking problems, who where alcohol sort of destroyed their lives, but also they created all this great work. And then one of the big questions of her of her um, doctoral thesis was you know, um, who was able to successfully continue on um, having such a, you know, writing at such a level once they became sober or whatever. And, you know, I'm someone who studied uh, literature and poetry in college. And it's interesting to me that, you know, this woman sort of did the 
work that I wasn't able to do. I kind of basically bombed out of college as a lot of res- as a result of um, drinking and the attendant depression that went up w- went with it when my in my early twenties. But like this is she. This woman was like studying all the people that I really wanted to study but couldn't because I was a drunk. Mm. You know, does that mm-hmm. make sense? And yes. so she got through it. And and so half of her book is also telling these stories of Raymond Chandler and Raven Carver and. Um, I can't remember some of the other authors names um, right now some of whom I didn't know but they're all you know again sort of like highbrow liter- literature mm. you know um, type figures um, again all of whom were raging alcoholics and, and alcohol kind of destroyed their lives in many many cases and there's only really a few that once they got into recovery and got sober um, continued on having successful literary careers, which mm. is interesting, yeah, you know. And so, um, and then it, so she she sort of interweaves the the research that she did for her doctoral thesis with her own, uh, you know, personal with her own experience with her memoir, and it's just a really, really, really incredible book. I mean, I the and the writing is really is crystal clear. Mm. Like the writing is, I, I it's the first book I read two hundred pages of it on vacation in L.A. in Palm Springs. And then stopped and went back to the beginning and started reading it again, but this time with the pen in my hand mm. and started underlining because there was there was so many great either turns of phrase or such interesting information regarding sort of uh, everything from sort of the physiology of addiction to uh, just you know it was uh, or ways that she would describe. Uh, her thinking about drinking or her actual experiences that I was like, oh my God, she said it exactly the way I've been thinking about it, mm. you know? Um, really, really profound, really, really related to this book. And so um, I'd never really done that before. I'd never really stopped a book at page 200. It's a 500 page book. And then and then like went back and started it again, but this time to like make notes. Um, so anyway, I, I, I recommend the book, you know, I'm a, I'm a big recovery um, proponent, you know, I'm a sober person, sober alcoholic. And and uh, but you don't have to be to be interested in this book. This book is very interesting if you have people in your life who have, you know, issues with alcohol, or if you're just interested in the thing because you have your intellectual curiosity or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very 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 well written book, um, and it doesn't have to just be for people like me. But if you are someone like me or someone you know. Um, I think if I had read this book while I was still drinking, it probably would have helped me get to sobriety faster, you know, so mm-hmm. if, And what's you know, the title? It's called The Recovering. The Recovering. Uh, the author's name is Leslie Jameson. Great. Um, she, it made somewhat of a splash when it came out last year. She had, there were pieces in the, the New York Times, like, in the, you know, The New Yorker. I, mean, I knew about the book, but only sat down to read it once I had some free time. And uh, really, really, really strongly recommend the book to anyone who is interested in um, recovery. Awesome. So there you go. Um, all right, that does it for this week's This Is Cannabis. Please remember to email questions and comments to thisiscannabis at xray.fm. Also, please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at thisiscanna on x-ray. This Is Cannabis is engineered by Will Romy, and our theme music is The Song Impossible OK by Portland artist Motric. Please be sure to check them out on Spotify. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Good night and good luck, and thanks so much for listening.